Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, John Grogan discusses his book, Marley and Me. John Grogan, author of Marley and Me, Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog. As we record this in January of 06, your book is number two on the New York Times bestseller list. When you were writing this, did you have any idea in your wildest imagination it would strike this kind of chord with readers? No, I really didn't. I, um, I like to say that I'm probably the most surprised of anyone uh, at how well this book is done. Um, I, kn I, I knew this book would find an audience, and I knew that um, I, I felt I believed in this book and this story uh, from the beginning, and, and, I, and I was fairly confident it was going to do well. Um, I did not think it was going to come out of the gate its very first week out at, uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. It came out at number 10, and it's now in its 13th straight week on the bestseller list, and it just, it just keeps moving up. It was four last week, and it's two this week. Um, so it's been it's just been this uh, sort of amazing phenomenon, and I'm not 100% sure why it's doing as well as it is. I have some theories, but... Well, what, what would you think, what's your theory? Because if it's your first book and it debuted at number 10, and you're not exactly a household name nationwide, what, what are you hearing from people that is... Well, that's right. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm an unknown author. I mean, I have an audience here in Philadelphia, but, but outside of it, I don't, obviously. Um, and my publisher did not put money into an advertising campaign. There was, there's been no ads out there or anything like that. Um, it, was, it's, it was really a grassroots marketing campaign. Um, grassroots by you? No, by my publisher. They, they uh, distributed a lot of early advanced reader copies, like to booksellers. And the phenomenon of this book is people look at the cover and they say, oh, the guy wrote a story about his dog. Um, and they kind of shrug. And then they read it, and they realize that it, it's more than that. And it seems to be hitting an emotional chord with a lot of people. And a lot of people are spreading the word on this book just through word of mouth from friends and whatnot. It was funny. At, at Christmas time, I had a woman come to one of my book signings, and she didn't. She, she was just there. For, there were several authors there, and she just picked it up by happenstance. And uh, she came back. Um, I don't know, about five days later, she called me at my office and said, can I stop by at the Inquirer to sign some books? And she had 25 copies of it. And she just wanted to give it to everybody she knew. And that's an extreme case. Not, not many people do that. But several people read it and then went out and bought five or six or seven copies of it. So the couple of weeks before Christmas, um, we sold a lot of books. Is it primarily dog lovers who are drawn to it? Yes. Yeah, it is, but not exclusively. Um, I think that I may have given voice to um, an emotion that a lot of dog owners uh, feel about their pets. Um, I think we all know those kind of over-the-top dog owners who 
probably inappropriately treat their dogs like little humans in the family, and they probably shower too much attention on them. But I think they're a small minority. And then there's most people in America who have pets have, I think, a fairly healthy understanding of the pet's role in the family. But that said, you really can't help letting these amazing animals insinuate themselves into your life and into your heart. And before you know it, they've become a part of your family. And, they've, and they actually change the dynamic of your family, um, I think, in better ways. And that's really what my book is about, is, is how a dog, even an incorrigibly bad one like mine was, can change a family and, and can teach lessons to a family. But um, you know, I basically wrote an unvarnished book about a 13-year window in my life and the, the life of my wife, um, starting as newlyweds and, and moving forward. And um, I really didn't pull any punches about the emotional roller coaster that that period was, including having to say goodbye to this, this pet this, um, at the end of his life after 13 years with us. 13 years of causing a lot of havoc and a lot of damage. Um, most of the book is a, is a, a funny account of, of sort of the over-the-top antics that these dogs can bring into your life, especially a large, energetic dog like we had. Um, and then the end is saying goodbye to this dog. And, um, and I, I've heard from a lot of people around the country who said, thank you for saying what I've always felt, but never felt I had permission to actually come out and say. And so I think that's part of the dynamic. A part of the dynamic also seems to be um, that I tell a story of a young couple coming of age, if you will, or, or figuring out what their life is going to be. People get pets at different times in their life. Um, my wife and I happened to get ours right at that juncture that every couple goes through when you're bringing two separate individuals together and they have to figure out how to blend those two lives into one shared relationship. And uh, we just had gotten married. We'd bought this little bungalow down by the water. Um, and we spent a lot, you know, we were in our 20s. We had lots of energy. And we hand sanded the floors and varnished and did all this work making it this little tiny bungalow, just perfect. And then we had the great idea to bring this cute little 10-pound puppy uh, into our lives, thinking, like, well, how bad can it be? <laughs> He's so cute and little. <laughs> and he quickly grew to be just under 100 pounds of of really unbridled, sort of wildly over-the-top energy. And, and he bounded through our lives and our house. And he crashed through the screens. And he tore up the flooring and went through the drywall a couple of times, destroyed a few couches and some mattresses. And that was life with this dog. So as we were trying to figure out what our lives would be and how to make a relationship that worked and could be sustained, this dog was turning our lives upside down and, and affecting us and affecting our decision making and affecting the couple we became. And so and, you know, people bring dogs into their lives and they, the assumption is, I will bend this dog to my will. And we do that. We try to do that. We work hard to train them and to teach them the rules. Um, but what we're less likely to admit, but I think is true in almost all cases, is the dog is also bending the human to their will a little bit. And there's this, there's this compromise going on. And so even as we were trying to shape Marley to fit into our lifestyle, he was shaping us um, as, as the couple that we became and eventually as the parents we became. 
and we're different people because of this dog. And I would argue that we're better people because of this dog and some of the lessons that we took from him and, and the tolerances we learned and the patience that he forced us to, to, to have and to find. Um, you know, it would have been really easy to get rid of this dog. And at one point in the middle of the book, I, I write about it. We almost did. Uh, um, my wife had a really hard second pregnancy, and she was on bed rest for three straight months. And meanwhile, we have this little 14-month baby in the house. We're living in Florida at the time. We have no family support around us. They're all up north. Um, and she's on bed rest. We have an infant. I'm trying to hold a job down. I'm a newspaper columnist down there at the time. Um, and meanwhile, Crazy Marley is up to, he's not calming down at all, and he's crashing through everything. And one day I came home, and we had this beautiful white cotton couch that we had bought, you know, for a Florida home, and, and it was splayed open right down to the springs. And my wife was beside herself, and she just, she was crying, and she was discouraged, and she said, either you get, find this dog a new home, or I will. And I thought, I just got to get him out of her hair for a couple of hours, and she'll be okay. And I took him out for a long walk. And when we came back, um, she had calmed down. But the next day, she said, you know, I'm serious. He, he's got to go. I can't go on like this. Because he really was destroying our house one bit at a time. And did, we just Did you ever get tired of it and think, this is I just did, too oh, much? I did. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm very frustrated. But I also found myself kind of having this male bonding going on with him, like after, like, we had babies, and there's all of that whole responsibility with children. He was kind of my guy friend in the house, you know, and and he started out as Jenny's dog, my wife, and at some there was a transition there somewhere after children started arriving when he really became my dog, and that was obvious and clear. So I was heartbroken. I mean, I really did not want to get rid of this dog, and that's when I started realizing really how much he meant to me. Um, and so I started working with him and really drilling him and training him. He'd already been expelled from obedience school once at this point. You know, after two lessons, they said, don't bring him back. You know, Whatever you do, please don't bring him back. Um, and so I re-enrolled him with a different instructor. And, and we got through it, to make a long story short. We got through it, and we moved on. And, and uh, Jenny loved that dog more than anyone. Um, and you know she was really in suffering the you know the postpartum blues after after the second pregnancy and this tough and, and this whole tough bed rest situation, um, and she came out of that, and we went on to have 13 great years with them. So I guess if if there was a <clears throat> a single word that I would use to describe this book, it's it's commitment. I mean he taught us about commitment and the value of commitment, and and sticking with those we love, even when they're flawed, and in his case, deeply, deeply flawed. And um, you know, that's him on the cover as a puppy. Uh, and then he, you know, he he quickly grew into this big, giant uh, sort of powerhouse that that really changed our whole home environment. But you know, in many ways, for for the better. I mean, he was it was there was lots of laughter, lots of joy. Lots of rolled eyes, um, lots of embarrassing moments that then made great stories to tell at cocktail parties. Um, did you write them down as they were happening? I, mean, I how, did. How did you reconstruct all this? Stuff I did. That's an interesting book? question because, especially um, 
with the memoir coming into focus um, lately with James Fry's no, uh, no, novel. It's a, it's a memoir, but with, with some fiction mm -hmm. in there. Um, in my case, and I've been a newspaper journalist for 25 years, so my instinct is to, is to document and to, and to capture things so I don't lose them. And just like when you go on an interview, you're writing everything down you can get. So when you get back to start writing, you have, you have this, this document. And um, that instinct carried over into my personal life. And I've always kept uh, an active journal uh, in a Word document on the computer. And um, so as these things were happening, I would go out late at night, and I'd just write them into my computer. And I had, you know, I have hundreds of pages of of these moment-by-moment -moment descriptions through the course of this 13-year period. Um, was it much different writing a book than, than doing a daily column? Yeah, um, certainly. My, my column is a little under 700 words. How often do you? Three times a week. And if someone is not familiar with your column, how can they read it? Um, I am a columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And if you go to uh, philly.com, uh, on, the, on the web, there's a, a little tab to click columnist, and I'm in there. And so all my columns run, run out there. And, and people, actually, people, a lot of people read it all over the world. It's interesting to, to see how that dynamic works. Well, what do you put in your column? Um, I, my title is Pennsylvania Columnist. So I am free to write about um, anything around the state. I mostly focus on the Pennsylvania suburbs around Philadelphia. We have another columnist who writes out of New Jersey. So I'm really on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware. I don't write much in the city because we have a city columnist too. Um, I, I do quite a bit on the state legislature because that's that's part of that's considered part of my beat, and they always give me plenty to write about, uh, which is a blessing for a newspaper columnist. Uh, but what I really try to do is to capture the experience and and uh, the, the the joys and the frustrations of being a Philadelphia suburbanite. And it's a unique set of pressures and rewards. I mean, it's the suburbanites are the ones who have most of the commuting headaches. And, um, but they also have some of the, the pleasures of living with a, a big backyard and, and, and being out in the country more. Is it hard to write a column? Because it looks like it would be fairly easy. You just sit down and write every, whatever you feel like. But do you, do you interview and do research and kind of reporting and incorporate that into your column? Yes. Um, column, I mean, if you're good at writing a column, it should look easy. It should be a quick read and breezy. And, but it's, it's really it's, it's a pretty challenging job. I know a lot of really great reporters um, who tried column writing, and they just, after trying it for six months, said, you know, I just, this isn't for me. It's just it's, it's hard. It takes a special disposition to do it. Um, I, yeah, I think most good columnists are reporting. They're not just sitting in a vacuum writing off the top of their head. Um, I do a, sort of several different things. And some columns I, I come up with my own, on my own, and I will go out and spend a day with somebody or, or parachute into a situation and, and, and do like a first-hand observer. Um, sometimes I'm playing off the news, and I'll do some phone work to sort of flesh out that, that column. Um, other times I love to do personal essays. And in fact, the book on Marley stemmed out of an essay that I ran in the Inquirer in early 2004. Um, he died at the very, in December 2003. And as I said earlier, I, I went through um, 
13 years of sort of trotting him out to tell funny stories at his expense. And I actually, and, and did the occasional column about having the world's worst dog. And they always seemed to be popular with people, but after he died, I felt the need to like really tell the other half of the story. That for all the, the, the chewed up wood and, and gouged walls and everything over the years, he also brought a lot of joy and laughter into our lives and perspective. Um, so I wrote that column, and it was a column saying goodbye to this, this old kind of bad boy dog. And normally, when I write a column in the Inquirer, I'll get anywhere from a couple dozen to 100 or 150 emails and phone calls. And I can kind of gauge how the column's going based on the reaction the next morning. After I wrote about Marley, I got 800 uh, responses. And they were really highly emotional responses. I mean, people were really pouring their hearts out to me. And most of them wanted to take issue with my statement that I had the world's worst dog. <laughs> they said, no, you didn't. I had the world's worst dog. And then they would regale me with these tales. But that's when I realized there was a bigger story there. I mean, um, uh, you know, I, it, this story, this little column about him actually somehow touched a nerve. And um, I, I had always thought that there might be like a funny book in this crazy dog. Because he did have sort of a bigger-than-life presence. And, and, and an eventful life. He was in a, in a feature-length movie, in which he caused total havoc, by the way. But What's the name of the movie? It was called The Last Home Run. Went straight to video. Can, um, can it be found anywhere? Uh, I think so. I mean, as recently as a couple of years ago, it was, you could rent it at Blockbuster. And I, I don't know if it's still out there or not. Um, but he had, he had like a bit part in it. You know, they, they needed a family dog. And I knew a, a friend of a friend was an assistant producer on the set. And so Marley got the role. And of course, he like take after failed take with him because he couldn't settle down. I mean, he, was at, he and I were at the scene of a, um, of a stabbing in our neighborhood. A, a teenage girl was, was stabbed in her driveway. And I heard her screaming. And I probably would have hesitated to run out there if I didn't have a 100-pound dog at my side. It was very intimidating to strangers. This was in Florida? This was in Florida. Um, and, and he and I went out there, and I was the first one to get to her. And I waited with her in, in my arms, thinking she was probably dying. She'd been stabbed in the ribs, through the ribs, into her lung. And um, I looked up at Marley. It was kind of one of those amazing moments when you sort of realize everything dogs bring to the table. And we'd always thought, like, oh, he'd just lick someone to death. He was just a big, happy dog. But he totally sensed the danger and the fear. And I lost track of him because I was concentrating on this 17-year-old this girl. And when I looked up, he was standing like 15 feet out from us. And he was totally in a fighter's stance. His fur was up on his shoulders. And he was looking in the direction the assailant had run. And I really knew at that moment that if that guy came back with the knife, that he was going to have to get past, past that dog first. And so there were a lot of moments like that in, in his life. And, um, and so I, I decided to do a book that, that told the whole story, not just a, a string of funny anecdotes about his bad behavior, but about also the enrichment that he brought and, the, and how rewarding it was to have this sort of like amazing animal in our life. And, and I started writing it uh, in early 2004. While working full time at the Inquirer, I was writing like early morning, 5 to 7 in the morning. And it took about nine months, and I, and I had it done. Did, did many, uh, it's, it's a first novel <clears throat> or first book, and usually authors of first books get turned down by multiple publishers. Were well, you I turned was, down by multiple well, publishers? Well, no, I wasn't. I was braced for that because I've, I've 
the stories are legion about you know getting a hundred rejection notices and and maybe not even being able to find an agent who wants to represent you. Um, I got an agent in like forty eight hours after making inquiries, and I wrote it on spec with just she was the only one seeing it as I was writing it. Um, and when it was again, she kept saying, you know, this is all about the writing. If I try to pitch this to a publisher and say, well, I have a client who wrote this story about his dog. You know, you, it's a hard story to, to, to pitch in, in 30 seconds. It's like some guy wrote a book about his dog. But she kept telling me it was all in the, the story and the writing. And so we submitted a finished manuscript. Um, and a week later, we had six offers. You're spoiled. Yeah, I am spoiled. They were all from major publishing houses. And she held an auction. And uh, there was like a bidding auction. And it went to William Morrow in, in the auction. So it was like, like that. I had sold the book. And then it's been like one surprise after another. I mean, every, there's like, it started out at a 50,000 print run. And then, and then they upped it for another 10,000 before it even came out based on, on the buzz that was starting to take place among booksellers. And it's now in its 20th print run. And it, there's 770,000 copies of it out there right now. Do you read your reviews? I do. Any negative ones? One. Actually, the reviews have all been pretty kind. Um, some have been extremely kind. Um, I, got, I got one bad review. Kirkus Reviews did not like this book. They just, I, um, and who knows? Everyone has the right to their opinion. What's it like reading a bad review of your own book that's about your life? Well, yeah, I mean, it stings a little bit. But you know, being a newspaper columnist, it really, the, the first job requirement is to have thick skin, because people love to disagree with you. They love to get in your face about it. And, so I've been a columnist for many years, and I've, I've kind of developed a, a thick skin. But you're right. When someone's criticizing your story about your life, um, it, it's hard. But one of the great blessings for this book um, was it came out October 18th. And the week before it even came out, Janet Maslin in the New York Times, the reviewer for the, the New York Times, wrote a really great review. Um, and so she kind of put the book on the map. And, and once, once the New York Times had come in with a positive review, it started getting other attention. And I think that's partially why it came out in its first week on the bestseller list. Have you always been a dog person? Uh, yeah, I got my first dog when I was 10. My, in fact, it's the, uh, the opening of the book. Uh, in the prelude, there's this, there's this description of my father taking me out to a farm in the country when I was 10. And we brought home this mutt. And he was with me for 14 years until I was a young adult out of college working at my first newspaper job. And I called him like the perfect dog. We, you know, we used to call him St. Sean. He was so good. And, and, and so that was what I was used to. And, and then when we brought Marley in, I thought, well, how hard can it be? I'm an adult now. You know, I, as a little boy, I trained this other dog to be like a, this really well-behaved dog. And uh, different personalities, and, uh, and Marley definitely was a was much more of a handful. What kind of dog was Sean? He was a he was a total mixed breed, but I think he had some cocker spaniel and golden retriever in him. So when you went to pick a dog for your adult dog, you picked a, a Labrador retriever. Right. Why a breed as opposed to a mutt? Well, yeah, it's, 
as I, I, I like to joke with friends, like, you know, and if you're buying a, a, a dog, just do everything the opposite of what we did. And our great uh, vetting process for getting a Labrador Retriever is we used to love how Gary Larson portrayed them in The Far Side. He had these really very <laughs> funny labs, and they even talked. I mean, they were witty and urbane. And, and then we'd see labs down on the bike path and whatnot. And they're, they're absolutely spectacular animals. And as a breed, I think if you could generalize, uh, Labradors bring, they just bring joy into whatever environment they're in. They just beam happiness and playfulness. And, and that's also part of why they're a high, uh, a high management type of a breed, because they are very social, they demand a, a lot, they give a lot of affection, and they demand a lot of it from you. Are they smart or dumb as dogs go? They're supposed to be smart. I think uh, I got one who got all the looks, and he was a little deficient on the brains. No, labs are, are really uh, very intelligent dogs. They're commonly used as leader dogs. Uh, the police use them for bomb sniffing. You see them at rescues, um, cadaver sniffing dogs. They can be trained to do just about anything. And they're incredibly strong, muscular dogs. You know, they were originally bred for, you know, helping fishermen in the North Atlantic off from, off from the coast of Labrador, um, pulling in nets in, you know, frigid water, and that's what they're bred for. Um, you know, so but you, you put a dog like that in your home, and you need to expect that it's not like a piece of furniture. And I hope if there's a serious subtext to this book, it's that before people go out and pick a dog, they do some homework, a little more than we did, actually. And, um, and just be honest about what their lifestyle is and, and what that relationship's going to be and, and pick a breed that'll, there are sedate breeds that'll it'll be a great inside dog. And then there are others that really you shouldn't have unless you really plan to give them a lot of exercise every day. How did you work a dog into your lifestyle? Because both of you worked at the time you got the dog. Right. Well, what, right. what happened to Marley during the day when you were both at work? Well, we, my wife um, is a newspaper reporter as well, a journalist, and um, we had staggered hours. So she would go in at like 8.30, and I wouldn't leave the house till 10. And then she'd come home at noon for lunch. She, we lived very close to her office. Did she, you have a fenced yard? And we had a fenced yard. Um, and, but he would stay inside during the day, which were safe and out of trouble. Um, and, then, and then she would come home, and then she would be done with her day pretty early in the day, and I'd work into the evening. So he was never really alone for more than three or four hours at a time. And, and so that really wasn't an issue. What did you do when you traveled? Well, that's, the, uh, that's one of the uh, chapters in the book. Is, uh, my wife and I uh, took a trip to Ireland. And we knew we couldn't leave him in a kennel for two weeks. It was just, you know, he was just too energetic to be put in a, you know, a small space like that. So we found a dog sitter, a friend of mine, uh, who worked at, at the paper I was at. And, um, and it was actually pretty funny. I mean, she just, he totally instantly figured out that she was not an alpha personality and he could boss her around. And we were calling long distance from Ireland and each phone call was worse than the one before. You know, he was stealing her food off the plate and he was totally domineering her. And by the time we got home, she, was, she had her bag packed and on the front porch, she was so ready to get out of there. Mar I think Marley had really worn her out, but, but we, we usually left him with friends um, or, or found people who would stay at our house with him. Where'd you get the name Marley? Uh, Marley, um, there was an interesting story of that, and that's in the book also. Actually, the second chapter of the book describes this. You know, we, we went and we picked out this, this little puppy, and the first thing we did as dog owners was to have like a, a big fight over what to call him. 
and my wife wanted uh, what I considered to be feminine names for a male dog, and she thought I was like leaning too heavily towards like macho names, and so we were arguing back and forth, and and my wife to drown me out, I suppose, put a, a cassette tape in the stereo, and it was Bob Marley, um, one, of, one of our favorite musicians. And his song, Is This Love, was always kind of a theme song of our relationship. And it just happened to be queued up. And so this great song comes on, and we both looked at each other. And like, almost, like we'd rehearsed it, we both said, Marley, that's <laughs> it. And that's how he got his name. Now, you registered him with the American Kennel Club. And you say you had to come up with a fancier name, so you came up with Grogan's Majestic Marley of Churchill. That's right. That's right. Did you imagine him being in dog shows at the time? Oh, I was totally delusional about this dog. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I kind of half-jokingly talk in the book about um, growing up in a mixed-breed family myself. You know, I'm a little Irish and a little German, a little French, a little English. So this was like our my big chance at at, at pure breeding and, and a blue blood line. And so, yeah, I really thought, you know, we got this AKC purebred dog, and he was a magnificent looking dog. He really was. He was like a, a, an Egyptian sphinx, you know. He was just this beautiful, tawny, big muscular animal. Um, but he, he didn't have what it took to be a show dog. So, so, but when I was naming him, my wife thought I was absolutely ridiculous. You know, I was really dead serious. I'm like, this has a really good ring to it. And, and then our vet, our vet broke the bad news to us that you know we really, you really want to like end this gene line right here and now. <laughs> so we had to take it. We t we took him to be neutered. Uh, the vet was saying, like, I really don't think you want to breed this dog. You have right? a line in the book about the where the vet gives an expression when you're talking about breeding him, and the vet's expression says, "Good God, man! For the sake of future generations, we must contain this genetic mistake at all costs." That's right. That's right. So you had him neutered? Yeah, we had him neutered, and uh, we almost didn't have him neutered. I was, we were driving to the, to the vets to have him neutered, and I just felt kind of bad for him, you know, male bonding. I was like, oh, the poor guy, you know. He's, and so I opened the window for him, and he was sticking his nose out, and I opened it a little wider. And next thing I knew, we're driving down a five-lane surface road, and Marley's climbing out the window of a moving car. He sensed something. And he must have sensed something. And Jenny's braking in traffic. And I have him by the tail. And his whole body's hanging out of the car as we're stopping. And by the time we finally got, I, we got him there safely. I, we got stopped. And she ran around and grabbed him. And we put him back in the car. So it's possible to hold a 100-pound dog by the tail? Yeah, well, his hips were in the car. His, his, he was sort of over his belly hanging out. So a lot of his weight was being suspended on the door. And I was holding him for dear life so he wouldn't keep going. And, um, and we got him back in the car, and we got him there. And by the time we got him there, my blood pressure was up to here, you know. And I said, give him the works. Was he different after he was neutered? Not tremendously. I mean, the neutering did not take any of his sunny exuberance away or his high energy levels. It, 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 took, the, his, it took his sexuality away, so he, he wasn't uh, humping or, or you know, going after female dogs after that. But he was still as wild as ever. How did he get along with other dogs? Oh, famously. He was great. Um, smaller dogs would come up and try to pick fights with them. And he just didn't even understand that it was they were challenging him. His tail would be going. And he just thought it was play. So he, he played all the time and, and was happy all the time. And that's why I was so surprised when uh, my neighbor was stabbed, when I looked at him and I saw this, this like fierceness come out in him that I really didn't think was possible. 
Um, now, you write about your family quite a bit in this book. And first of all, your wife, Jenny, mm -hmm. uh, how long have you been married? 18 years. How old were you when you met? Oh, gosh. We met um, right out of college. She was very young, like about uh, like 22, and I was like 25. And then we dated and kind of bounced around to different papers. Um, and then we both ended up in Florida together. And we got married in 1989 and got Mar Marley the next year. Got a house and then quickly got Marley. And then he started destroying the house. And was your wife a dog person before yeah, you met Yeah, she her? grew up in a, house, a, a big dog family with English setters. And she also had the same experience, childhood experience, of these really sort of wonderful, calm dogs. But you don't remember, as kids, your parents are doing all the dirty work and handling all the, the, the responsibility end of it. So I'm, I'm sure we had blinders on. Now you're writing the book about uh, having children and your wife's miscarriage. Was it, were you reluctant to share that? I mean, there were times you th it was difficult to write about or you just didn't want to tell people about it, this The miscarriage it? is an interesting aspect of this book. It's, from hearing from readers, I mean, many readers point that chapter out as the most powerful chapter in their opinion of the book. And it's really in there almost accidentally. I, I told you that I keep detailed journals. And um, when I was going back through my journals as I started writing the book, I was looking for anecdotes about the dog. And I came across this kind of incredible single-space document, very long and detailed, that I wrote the night of my wife's miscarriage. I got her home from the hospital, got her to bed, and after she fell asleep, I went out and I just started pouring my heart out. And it had nothing to do with the story of the dog, but in a way it did have something to do with the story of the dog. Um, because when we came back um, from the miscarriage, uh, we walked in and I got my wife seated in the living room. And then, like I always did, I went and let Marley out of the garage. And his typical entrance was this crashing through and kicking up the floor rugs. And his tail would knock things off the coffee table and total bedlam. And that's what he did this time. But as soon as he got around the corner into the living room, I was about five seconds behind him. And when I walked around the corner, I couldn't believe my eyes. This wild dog who had just come crashing through a second ago was standing perfectly still with his shoulders between my wife's knees and his head resting on her lap, looking up at her whimpering, perfectly still, his tail hanging flat between his legs. So in that little five-second window, he detected her grief and this sort of great overwhelming sadness and like instantly responded to it. That's like the amount of empathy um, was really sort of an amazing thing to observe. And my wife had been really kind of the brave soldier through the whole miscarriage and hadn't cried. And, um, and something about that moment with the dog, she just buried her face in his fur and just sobbed, sobbed her eyes out. And, and I, you know, I read this journal entry you know, 13 years later as I was writing the book. And I said, you know, this is like really powerful and really immediate. It's not a piece of writing. There was no conscious writing going on. It was just me trying to get it out of me, this, this emotion from this very painful day. And that, that journal entry is that chapter. It ran almost verbatim with very little editing. Um, and it's very detailed. And people ask that question, like, well, how did your wife feel about that? And uh, my wife's also a writer. And she understands, as writers do, that if you're going to write about something, you need to write honestly about it. And if you can't be fully honest, you should really find another topic that you can be. And that was part of our life. And, and 
and part of our experience as a married couple. And it was really very quickly writing this book, it became obvious to me that the only way to tell the story of Marley was to tell the story of us as a couple and to tell that honestly. And so the story does spend a lot of time walking through, you know, trying to get pregnant and, and the miscarriage and, and then our first pregnancy and, and the bed rest with, with the second child. Do you have how many kids? Three. How did Marley take to sharing the house with another person? Well, that was one of Marley's great saving graces. Is um, well, he, he didn't have a mean bone in his body or a jealous bone in his body. And he just happily became second fiddle, and he loved those children and was very gentle with them. And so we never really, there were never any issues with him being aggressive with the kids or even being just clumsy around them. When I was in the room, he'd want to, you know, he'd, this big powerful thing knocking me over, but he knew that the babies were different and he'd settle right down and, and they'd climb all over him. And So yeah, like when he finally died, my wife and I lost the beloved pet, but for my children, it, was, it really was like losing a family member. They did not un really understand uh, the difference because they, right from day one, their earliest memories, there was this big yellow uncle, uh, you know, licking them on the face and, and you know, and, and right there at their side, stealing their Cheerios. And so it was, it was a tough thing for them. But I think also a, a really sort of nice and beautiful way to introduce a child to death. Um, you know, it was something that, that we controlled and we had within our family and, and they could grieve for this animal and kind of get to understand death in that capacity before having to deal with it on a human level. How old were they when Marley died? Well, it's a few years ago, so I think my oldest son was 11 at the time, like 11, 9, and 7. Can I ask you a little bit about your background? Hmm? Where'd you grow up? I grew up, I was born in Detroit and grew up uh, just outside Pontiac, Michigan. My father was an automotive engineer. Everybody in my neighborhood, you know, when you live in Metro Detroit, everybody works for the auto industry. Um, so, so, yeah, we, I, I grew up outside of Detroit and spent my whole life in Michigan including my first newspaper job out of college, um, and then got a fellowship to get a master's degree, like a mid-career journalism degree from Ohio State University, which took me to Ohio, which was a big, big rivalry when a Michigan kid, you know, my parents and my dad went to University of Michigan, so that was like a no-no, but I had a great year at Ohio State. And then I uh, went to another journalism program in Florida, and from the, that's what got me down there, and from Florida I, I got hired at the Fort Lauderdale newspaper. What was your first job as a reporter? My very first job as a reporter was at a little tiny paper uh, called the Herald Palladium in St. Joseph, Michigan. It's a harbor town um, in the southwest corner of Michigan on Lake Michigan. And you could see the lights of Chicago across the lake on a clear night. And so that's, it was about an hour and 10 minute drive um, outside the city. And it was just a little sleepy, like 30,000 circulation newspaper. And I was a police reporter. So I'm, you know, this kind of sheltered kid right out of college, and I show up, and um, my first week on the job, I, I was at the scene of a, of a homicide where the body had been dumped in the woods, and they hadn't found it for two weeks. So it was a wake-up call for me, and um, I think that someday there might be a book in that whole experience, because it was a fairly high crime area for a small, for a small community. Um, it was like a depressed factory town where the, that the economy had fallen out on. So I spent a few years as a police reporter there. 
and then moved up and covered the court system. So then I was sort of seeing the criminal justice uh, side of it from, the, from once it gets into the courthouse. And then I got a, uh, a couple, and then I met Jenny, my wife there. She came right out of college as a young reporter, and we started dating. And then we both moved to different newspapers, and then I went to Ohio State, and we kept getting farther and farther apart. But after I ended up in Florida, um, she came down to help me move, and she walked into the competing newspaper, the Palm Beach Post. I was at the Fort Lauderdale paper. And two weeks later, they hired her. And so she moved down to take the job, and a year later, we were married. When you started in, uh, in journalism, did you know you wanted to do newspapers specifically? Yes, absolutely. I never ever dreamed of broadcast or radio or mm -hmm. magazines. It was always newspapers. What's I, the appeal in newspapers? I love, I love newspapers. I, I, um, and I love newspaper readers. Um, and one of the important parts of my sort of being and my, my sense of happiness and self-worth is the daily interactions I have with readers who in one sense are total strangers and in one sense are almost like really good friends even the ones who'd like to disagree with me. And, and I have this sort of regular relationship that almost all by email now in the modern age, um, back and forth three times a week. And, and, um, and I just met some incredible, great, really smart, thoughtful people over the years. And they've really helped kind of keep my creative energies going. Um, I took a, a hiatus from newspapers for a few years. That's how I ended up in Pennsylvania. I was a columnist, very happy as a columnist in Florida. And um, I was, I'm also, I've always been a really enthusiastic gardener. And I saw that a gardening magazine in Pennsylvania, Organic Gardening, it's with Rodale Press in Emmaus outside of Allentown, uh, was looking for the, for the top editor. And I applied, and kind of on a lark actually I applied, and I got the job. Um, and I started as managing editor, and a year later, I was the top editor of this gardening magazine. And in many ways, it was a great experience, and I really learned a lot. Um, but I really, really miss newspapers. And I mean, there was just something about, I love newsrooms. I love other journalists. They're just smart, quirky, contrary people, and who are a lot of fun to be around. And, and I miss newspaper readers, as I said. So I was there for three and a half years, um, the whole time kind of pining away to get back at newspapers, but not wanting to move my family. I'd already moved my family once, and it's hard on children to move them from school districts. Um, and so out of the blue, I found out that the Inquirer was seeking a third columnist for their metro section. And that was in uh, late 2002. I applied, and three weeks later, I was a member of the Inquirer staff. In this day and age with the, the internet and television so pervasive, what role do newspapers have? Do they have a future? Yeah, well, I'm one of those great optimists who see the, the glasses half full and rising. Um, yeah, I, I totally believe in newspapers. I, I believe that newspapers have a unique function in that they can't necessarily compete with television on the immediacy of breaking news. Um, a good example is on 9-11 with the planes flying into the World Trade Towers. There was a 24-hour delay at best before newspapers could even come in on that story, and it was a totally a television-driven event as it, as it needed to be. And all of us print journalists were sitting there in front of the television as well. But it was in the weeks and the months afterward that uh, only 
the print media and particularly newspapers were able to tell that bigger story and, and really understand some of the dynamics that were at play and, and to unwind the lives of who these terrorists were and the lives of the people in the buildings. And there's this incredible public document out there that was written in bits and pieces in newspapers around the country, including in ours and the Inquirer, uh, that, that are now a part of history. And, and television is great, for, and the internet is great for, for those short, breaking, at the moment uh, events. But for analysis and context and understanding and helping people understand what my place is in this world and how, how my world is changing and being affected, it's very hard to do in, in an electronic media. Um, and so I, I think there will always be a place for newspapers. They might not be pa printed on paper someday, but the printed word is, is just priceless and it's not going to go away. You, you mentioned in the book that your hobbies are uh, guitar playing, woodworking, and reading. First of all, what kind of guitar do you play? Um, I play, I have a, a couple, I used to play bass in a, in a, like a newsroom rock band, just sort of straight ahead. So I have, I, I play electric bass when I play with other people. But I play a lot of acoustic guitar on my own. And I love folk and bluegrass and, and that kind of thing. What kind of guitar do you have? Well, actually, one of the joys of selling a book that goes on the bestseller list is I just got to buy a beautiful Martin Marquis D28 guitar. I've been playing for years. I've been playing the same acoustic guitar that I bought as a sophomore in high school. And I still have that guitar. And I thought, it's finally time to upgrade. So, And Martin is, as I'm sure you know, is made in Nazareth, just up the road from us here. And so it, it just felt right to get a Pennsylvania-made, handmade guitar. And it's just beautiful. And woodworking? Yeah, I like to play around with wood. I, I live on two acres out in, actually, not even the suburbs. It's the exurbs. I, I live out in the country. And on my property, um, there's a, a big woods that starts on my property and then goes out into uh, open land. And I harvest, I, it's a hobby of mine. I, when trees fall in storms, I harvest you know, black walnut and uh, native cherry, oak, and ash. And I take these large logs down to a sawmill and have them sawn into boards. And then they, they sit in my garage in season, and then I make things out of them. What do you make? I like to make small pieces of furniture, jewelry boxes, little end tables, anything that I feel like. It's just relaxation work. What kind of reading do you do? I read, well, I mostly read. In, in my day-to-day -day week, I read a lot of current nonfiction. I read a lot of newspapers and magazines. And I, I tend to gravitate towards nonfiction books. Um, but I, I always love a, good, a great novel. Can you recommend anything? Well, one of the novels of the last year, and I read it later than most people, was The Lovely Bones. I mean, it was a bestseller. But it's one of those books that, you know, I, I read it like a year and a half ago now. I'm still thinking about. It's just a, a, a beautiful book. Now, getting back to Marley um, and your move to Pennsylvania, will you tell the story about your, your flight from, you flew Marley from Florida to right, Philadelphia? Right, right. Yeah, we never, Marley had obviously never been on an airplane, and in fact, he wasn't even very good in the car. You know, he was one of those dogs who would shove his shoulders between the two front seats, and his nose would be pressing on the rearview mirror. He was so big. So we had to take him on the plane. And, you know, we're a family with three little kids now, including my daughter was only two at the time. So we have her in a stroller. 
we show up at the airport with this big dog, and the vet gave us tranquilizers for him, so he kind of looked like all sort of saggy-eyed. And, um, and we had this crate for him, a travel crate. And it was too big for the crate. And they said, well, he's, we, can't, we cannot let you take him on that plane unless he can get in there and turn around freely. And he barely made it into the crate. I mean, he could barely fit. And then we, we finally, we almost missed the plane. And we had frogs with us and crickets and all the kids' little pets, goldfish in a bag. And, um, and we get out to the plane. And we finally get on the plane. We almost missed it. And all of a sudden, I hear barking coming from the hold of the airplane. It's because Marley's going up in there. And he's wondering where we are. And I just look straight ahead and try to pretend that he wasn't our dog. But we all got there OK. And it was actually a very comical sight. Leaving the airport, I, I had a, a Nissan Altima at the time. And it was already up there waiting for me. So we had three children, two adults, a 100-pound dog, and all our luggage in this little car driving from the airport. It was like we looked like the Beverly Hillbillies or something. How much did Marley eat? He had a uh, huge appetite. Um, we would feed him whatever, like, I, I sort of forget now, but it was like large, a large bucket of food twice a day. And, and he would woof it right down. He was, he was very food triggered. And then he was a counter surfer. You know, if you left anything on the counter, it would be gone. And he had a couple of those things where he ate an entire roast, which I found out is a pretty common lab behavior now. I'm hearing from all these different dog owners. And everybody has a story about uh, how their lab ate the turkey dinner or ate the ham roast whole. And um, one day, I caught Marley up on the table eating all the kids' grilled cheese sandwiches. He was a total chow hound. Um, will you tell the story about the gold chain? Well, yes. Uh, for, for my wife's birthday one year, um, I bought her a, a nice gold chain for her neck. And she, she loved it, and she put it on. And, and a few minutes later, she put her hand to her throat, and she said, oh, my chain is gone. And she apparently had not had it clasped all the way. And so I said, well, it's gotta, we haven't gone out, so it's got to be right here. So we start looking around, and I, I noticed in the corner of the room, Marley is getting very agitated. He's bouncing off the walls. He's like doing this dance. And we knew from experience when he acted like that, it almost always meant that he had something illegal in his mouth that he knew he shouldn't have. And I looked at him, and hanging out <coughs> the side of his mouth was the little tip of the gold chain. And my wife and I, like, it was like we were talking like someone in off the ledge. And we kind of started circling around him and saying, now, take it easy, boy. Take it easy. And we got closer and closer, and we were just about within reach where I could grab him and force his jaws open. And he saw, saw us coming, and he threw his head back, and he swallowed it. I mean, he, he definitely knew what he was doing. He did not want us to get this chain away from him. Um, I, won't, I won't go into all the gory details, but I did get that chain back. It took me three days of following him around with a shovel. And all I'll tell you is that it came out way shinier than it went in. We, used to, we, we joked that we could have opened a, a, a mystery jewelry cleaning business. We couldn't tell people how it happened, but dog stomach acids do wonders for gold, I'll tell you. And Marley lived 13 years? He lived 13 years. What did he die of? He died of a condition known as bloat, <clears throat> which is actually pretty common in large-chested dogs like Labradors and, and other big dogs. It's a condition where their stomach, a dog's stomach is on a long horizontal axis. And, um, and the stomach actually twists, kind of like uh, you could twist a water balloon. 
And once it twists, the only way to get it untwisted is to go in surgically. And then I, I believe what they do is they actually staple the stomach then to the, the walls uh, of, of the cavity to hold it in place. It's a very invasive surgery. And there was really no question for a 13-year-old dog. He was failing on all fronts by this age. His eyesight was going. He was pretty much totally deaf. His teeth were, you know, were worn down. He had very bad arthritis. Um, and so we were just making him comfortable, knowing that he was in his final year of his life. And then this happened, and, you know, and I rushed him to the vet. And she tried some non-surgical interventions, and they weren't working. And she said, you know, if he was a healthy five-year-old dog, I'd say, let's go for surgery by all means. But she said, you know, you really don't want to put him through this. And she was right. And that's actually the end of the book is I was with him. I, I, I didn't take him there to be put to sleep. I really took him there hoping they could, could get him out of this, this crisis. Um, but that's where I said goodbye to him. And, and, and the vet put him to sleep. And then I, I brought his body home and we buried him on our property. How did you take it? Uh, how did I take the How did you take the, the loss of Well, you know, that's interesting because I, I don't consider myself a real sentimental guy. I don't really cry at funerals or cry at movies. Um, but I did cry for this dog uh, briefly. You know, I mean, it's just, um, it was tough. It was very tough saying goodbye to him for a number of reasons. One, because I knew I was going to miss him despite what a pain in the neck he was. You know, he really was like a constant companion for me. Um, I was sad about how I knew it was going to hurt my children and the grief that I knew they would feel and did feel. And so that was part of it, that sort of paternal protection that you don't want to expose your children to, to pain. And then part of it was just, it was a reminder of, his passing was a reminder of our own mortality. And you know, it's easy with our long lives to kind of be in denial that we're getting older each week and each month. And, and that we're sort of eternally young, and then one day we're not anymore. But with a dog, that's all compressed into a 10 or 12 year cycle. Did you think about who you were when you got him and who you were when he died, and he was the link to kind of who you were when well, you that, got him? <clears throat> yes, I mean, and that, you just, I think you just nailed the theme of this book. That's exactly what this book is about. It's about, it's a book about a dog, but it's really bigger than that. It's a story of the human voyage for one family. And we started out as these two young kids, really. You know, these 20-something didn't know what we were doing, starting a family. And 13 years later, and we're saying goodbye to this dog, we changed a lot. You know, we were now parents and had a mortgage and had three kids in our home and job responsibilities and all of those things. And, and, and so I, his death was like kind of a wake-up call reminder that like, you know, we are mortal and life is finite and that's what makes it valuable. But it, it also is what makes it a little bittersweet as well. After Marley died, how long were you dogless? We um, lasted, we, we survived about nine months without, <clears throat> without a dog. And, and I describe that in the book. It's kind of a double-edged sword because on, on one hand, life was much more comfortable without this big shedding dog in our life, you know, and we didn't, we no longer had dog fur flying around our dinner table and, and on all surfaces and um, the floors weren't scratched anymore and the windows weren't all gobbed up from him putting his nose on them. But the house was empty, even a house with three children. We all felt it. You know, the kids felt it and my wife and I felt it. So nine months later, um, 
Jenny and the kids, I was actually working, went out to a, and they did their homework this time. They found a really great breeder, uh, and both parents were on premises so we could see what both the father and the mother were like. And we got a female yellow lab, so we, we went with that lab, lab again. Yeah, the book, you didn't learn the first time. Yeah, I was gonna say, the book's about lessons you can learn, and apparently we didn't learn, but, but, but we did, because we ended up with a great dog. She's really very gentle and smart and focused. We jokingly call her the anti-Marley because she's everything he wasn't, and in a way, he was everything that she isn't. Um, she's, she's a great dog. We love her. She, compared to Marley, she's, she's a pretty uneventful dog, though. Do you write about her in your column? No. In fact, I, joked, I joke with her, you know, when I'm out throwing sticks. I say, you know, there's no, dog in, there's no book in you, dog, so, don't, so get used to it, you know. She's too good to, to, to write about. I've never written about her, other than to just mention mention her in this context. Now, since this book, well, your first book was about your life, you have another book in mind? Uh, yes, I do, and I've actually begun it. Um, and I, I love the first-person narrative as a, as a form of writing. I always have. Um, and so my next book is going to be staying in that genre. I'm, I'm working on an autobiographical story of uh, growing up um, in an Irish Catholic home and the journey that we take um, growing up with our parents and then sort of finding our independence from our parents and then eventually um, coming back to reconnect with them in the later days of their lives. Uh, my father died uh, about a year ago in December last year. And again, like the, with the story about Marley, I, I wrote a column um, in the Inquirer and the Inquirer put it on the front page. Uh, about my last visit home to see my father and say goodbye to him. And that is what inspired me to want to tell this bigger story. And again, if uh, people want to read your writing and they do not live within the shouting distance of the Inquirer, what, uh, where can they read it? They can go to www.philly.com and click on the, the Inquirer and you'll see a place to, to click on Columnist. And I have a home page there. And, and but it's better to just buy a copy of the Inquirer. Well, that would, that would help pay my salary, but no, I, I welcome anyone to come in and, and, and read my column online. It's great. This is the book we've been talking about, Marley and Me, Life and Love with the World's Worst Dog. John Grogan, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.